Hello and welcome to Tisky Sour. I'm Dahlia Gabriel and my how the tables have turned because tonight I am joined by Michael Walker. Michael, how are you doing? Very well. I'm enjoying the Navarra Media game of musical chairs we've been playing for the last playing for the last few weeks. I think next week I'm going to produce the show. I think maybe I'm, I'll be behind the camera next week, I think. I don't think we can get through a show without seeing that gorgeous face of yours. The US midterm elections were supposed to be a washout for the Democrats. That's because, in general, midterms are often used as a protest vote against a sitting president. But there are also some specific reasons why initial predictions were so bleak. Joe Biden has very low approval ratings, and with inflation the highest it's been for decades, most Americans told pollsters they thought the country was going in the wrong direction. Yet as the votes came, they presented Democrats with a surprise. The elections hadn't been all that bad. In the Senate, with five races yet to be called, the results look like this. The Democrats and the Republicans are neck and neck with 48 seats each, but most projections suggest the Democrats will retain control. When it comes to the House of Representatives, it looks likely that the Republicans will gain control. But it hasn't proved to be the route that many were expecting. The Democrats are currently on 176 to the Republicans 203, but some of the latest votes to come in will be from the largely Democrat-supporting West Coast. So what explains the surprisingly positive showing? The pundits on MSNBC think the Supreme Court's attack on abortion could have something to do with it. This was the quiet revolution, the silent majority, even in states like Kentucky. Yes, we, don't, we do not know in Kentucky, a state where Joe Biden was walloped in 2020, whether or not they're going to protect a woman's Gracious. right to choose. That is amazing. Hello. It, it was a huge night for abortion rights across the country. I mean, women voted in droves. Uh, in a number of states, uh, that right is now protected. Uh, in a number of states that, were un- that are unexpected, and it also drove a number of people to victory. So, yes, what people said a few weeks ago, that it didn't matter, that it was fading, it didn't Turns out that wasn't right. Number one mm. issue in exit polls in the state of Pennsylvania was abortion. Number wow. one issue for John Fetterman and also for Josh Shapiro, who won big. Mm-hmm. The influence of Donald Trump might have also helped the Democrats. That's because the Republicans put up hundreds of candidates who support Trump's denial of the 2020 election, which is not a popular position with swing voters. However, speaking just before the vote, Trump was clear we shouldn't be blaming him. You've endorsed more than 330 candidates this election cycle. Uh, Tonight, win or lose, the results for Republicans, um, how much of that will be because of Donald Trump? Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, okay? But it'll probably be just the opposite. Uh, When they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run. And they ran and they turned out to be very good candidates. You know, they've turned out to be very good candidates. Uh, but usually what would happen is when they do well, I won't be given any credit. And if they do badly, they will blame everything on me. So I'm prepared for anything, but we'll defend ourselves. One loss Trump will be most keen to distance himself from was that of Dr. Oz, a multimillionaire TV host who lost the Senate race in Pennsylvania. He was up against John Fetterman, a progressive Democrat who suffered from a life-threatening stroke at the start of the campaign. I'm proud of what we ran on, protecting a woman's right to choose. 
raising our minimum wage, fighting the union way of life. Health care is a fundamental human right. It saved my life and it should all be there for you when you ever should need it. Pennsylvania is a key swing state and is essential to winning presidential elections. So Democrats will be buoyed by Fetterman's win. And Trump is reportedly very pissed off. Maggie Haberman at the New York Times tweeted this. Trump is indeed furious this morning, particularly about Mehmet Oz, and is blaming everyone who advised him to back Oz, including his wife, describing it as not her best decision, according to people close to him. I would argue she's probably made a few worse decisions. Earlier today, I spoke to Labour reporter Sarah Jaffe, and I asked her for her takeaways on the result. Um, It turns out America is a little bit less of a shit place than I thought it was, um, and certainly a less shit place than people were predicting it would be this time yesterday. So we saw um, really high turnout for a midterm election. We saw Democrats holding a lot of seats that they were predicted to lose. Generally, the party that holds the presidency gets its butt kicked a little bit in the first midterms. Um, that didn't happen, even though, you know, pundits have been freaking out about like crime and the economy, inflation and all of that stuff. And the net sort of balance of power is probably to remain about the same as it was before this election. Um, Republicans might take the House of Representatives. Looks like Democrats will probably hang on to the Senate. Um, but What we saw issue-wise was that abortion was a big winner. All of the abortion referenda that were on the ballot won um, pretty resounding victories, and candidates who made that a central issue won pretty decisively. Um, The question of crime seems to have been a non-issue despite the hype placed on it, even by some supposed Democrats like the mayor of New York City and some candidates who are running elsewhere. And the question of inflation seems to not have knocked Democrats out of the race. I think the questions that people are asking are a little bit more complicated. We also see just how polarized the country really is. So you got high turnout, both sides means a lot of close races, not a lot of swing voters, although there are a couple places where we saw some split ticket um, where a Democrat won one statewide race and the Republican looks likely to win the other one. But mostly it looks like a still pretty polarized country that is still not going to get a whole lot done, unfortunately. We know that there's been a lot of power struggles in recent years within the party, so within the Democrat and the Republican parties. What do today's results tell us about the state of those internal struggles? In a sense, who is winning uh, in both parties? Unfortunately, I would say none of these internal battles have been resolved really firmly one way or the other. Um, When we look at the Republican Party, we see a lot of the most sort of dramatic right wing Trump-esque candidates losing in places like Pennsylvania, um, in Pennsylvania specifically to a progressive sort of Bernie aligned candidate in John Fetterman, who talks about legal weed and health care and also economic issues. And that Plenty of people sort of assumed John Fetterman was toast, not just because he likes legal weed, but also because he had a stroke during the campaign. 
And there was this assumption that that would do him in. And it turns out voters can relate to having health issues. Who knew in a country that doesn't have a functional healthcare system that people would have sympathy for a guy who's struggling with his health? Um, meanwhile, in New York State, where, you know, the state that is assumed to be a, such a safe blue state that Hillary Clinton parachuted herself in there to be at senator not that long ago, um, it was a tight race for governor. And the Republicans picked up some seats uh, across the state. Meanwhile, also in New York, in a state assembly race where I used to live in the Hudson Valley, an out and proud Democratic Socialist won a state assembly seat that is, again, not considered a particularly left-leaning district. Um, she's a woman of color. She ran strongly on climate issues, and she's going to the state assembly. DSA apparently picked up something like 36 seats already tonight for members and endorsed candidates, um, or last night, rather. You know, it's it's tough to say some very vocal, moderate candidates like Tim Ryan in Ohio lost pretty notably to the guy whose big claim to fame before this was writing the book Hillbilly Elegy, which is, of course, a book about how terrible poor white people are. So it's still a muddle. These fights are unfortunately going to keep going forward. But I think we can see certain issues that were considered sort of polarizing culture war issues in both parties. Um we see pretty decisively that abortion is a vote getter. Crime is not actually that high on people's uh, priority lists and the economy matters, but maybe not quite in the way we thought it did. And so if we were to zone in on a kind of more granular level, are there any individual results that are surprising or that have surprised you? When I start to look at it, I know I started this off by saying America's less shit than I thought it was. But when I start to look at the actual wins and losses, it it doesn't surprise me that much. Um, the abortion issue, I remember being in Ireland in, in 2018 for their abortion referendum and seeing it be um, 67 percent of the country voting for it and just saying, like, if America put abortion on a ballot nationwide, we would have similar results. So I'm not surprised that abortion is a winner, even in places like Kentucky. Um, I'm not surprised that when young voters come out, they vote strongly for the Democrats. It's a little surprising, I guess, in the numbers that they came out, because there's always this question of whether young people look at the American political system and say, this entire thing is garbage. Um, student loan forgiveness played a big role there. I could have told you that that was going to be popular because student loans are bad, actually. Um, but some interesting stuff that I want to talk about briefly here are places where the Democrat didn't win and we probably knew they weren't going to win, but they ran really strong campaigns that are building statewide in red states. Um, Charles Booker in Kentucky did not beat Rand Paul for the Senate, but he is um, a black former state legislator who ran a campaign. His slogan is from the hood to the holler, holler being um, the, the hollow. This is a, a sort of country term for um, rural districts. And he's been doing really, really impressive building statewide um, um, trying to bring together working class voters on a broad platform that would be good for everybody. Didn't win, ran a really solid race. Stacey Abrams looks like she didn't win in Georgia, has been doing really impressive voter registration work. A lot of people will have heard of her. Um, and Beto O'Rourke ran a closer than expected race in Texas. So I think the thing that I'll be watching going forward is these places where like, yeah, the big narrative is going to be the Republicans still won. These are still blue states or these are still red states. But there's something happening there that pretends a sort of longer term power shift. There's obviously going to be a presidential election uh, in two years. Uh, do these results indicate anything about where that might 
go? And what do you think might have changed as a result uh, of today's results, particularly in terms of what kind of election campaigns and forms of movement building were successful? I think if the results show us anything, they show us that predicting is a bad idea because you will often be wrong. Um, you know, the election results here are very different from what the mainstream pollsters and pundits said they were going to be. So I think a lot of people predicted that the left was out of step with the mainstream on issues like crime and abortion and that candidates needed to focus a lot more on, quote, kitchen table issues. But as Moira Donegan put it on Twitter this morning, who sets that kitchen table, right? Um, these are actually very close to the kitchen table for a lot of people. Um, looking forward to a presidential race, Biden and Trump are both very unpopular, actually, though Biden is not the kind of hate and fear figure for Republicans the way Obama or the Clintons have been. And I do think that matters. Biden is also very old and in not in great health. And we still sort of wonder if he's going to be the top of the ticket. We have no idea what Kamala Harris has been doing the last two years, but it certainly hasn't been making news. Um, and I still don't know if Trump is actually going to run a serious campaign again for president. Um, everybody's going to be looking at Ron DeSantis, who just won re-election in Florida and looks pretty decisive. But I just want to remind everybody that the person that he beat to win the governor's race was himself a former Republican governor of Florida, now running as a Democrat. Another point for the um, maybe don't run conservative Democrats question. Um, going forward, the U.S. Congress is still basically going to be unable to pass anything. So if I were Joe Biden and National Democrats, I would be looking very, very, very hard at what I can do with executive branch power to make people's lives better in ways they can feel in the next two years. Abortion bans concretely made people's lives work and they came out to vote them down in force. Legalizing weed makes people's lives better, not just because it's fun, but also because it gets people out of jail. Um, climate policy is not actually a vote killer and is probably actually a motivator for some of those young voters that Democrats are going to really count on. And so I would be looking very, very hard at the priorities of that under 30 voter block because that's the party's base now. There's going to be more of them in two years. That was Sarah Jaffe joining us from New Orleans. Right, on to our next story. Right now, the planet is hurtling beyond 1.5 degrees warming. But for the British commentariat, the real threat is this. Britain being held accountable for the damage we've done. God forbid. As the COP27 negotiations kick off, the question of loss and damage, otherwise known as climate reparations, has been pushed front and centre. And that's partly because of the pressure being put on the conference by leaders of climate vulnerable countries. Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, gave this blistering speech. I come from a small island state that has high ambition, but that is not able to deliver on that high ambition because the global industrial strategy that we have has fault lines in it. Our ability to access electric cars or our ability to access batteries or photovoltaic panels are constrained by those countries that have the dominant presence and can produce for themselves, but the global south remains at the mercy of the global north on these issues. But it isn't only in that. We heard Al Gore just now speak about the difference in the cost of capital to those of us in the global south. And I ask us, how many more people must speak before those of us who have the capacity to instruct our directors 
at the World Bank. Is that called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development only for the 20th century? At the IMF, which has, this has been trying more than the World Bank. How many more countries must falter, particularly in a world that is now suffering the consequences of war and inflation, and countries therefore are unable to meet the challenges of finding the necessary resources to finance their way to net zero. This world looks still too much like it did when it was part of an imperialistic empire. Also at COP, president of both Senegal and of the African Union, Macky Sall, called on wealthier countries to make good on their Paris Agreement pledge to pay $100 billion a year in climate financing for developing countries. Sal also called for this figure to be doubled in order to cover the true cost of climate-related impacts. This pressure comes as analysis by Carbon Brief shows that wealthier countries have been falling short of existing commitments, with the US paying less than a quarter of their fair share. But one British politician that seems to be listening is Shadow Climate Minister Ed Miliband. This is what he told Laura Koonsberg before he headed to COP. Part of the debate is going to be about the richer part of the world paying the poorer part of the world to help them deal with carbon costs. And some people even call it reparations. Essentially, wealthy countries ought to be giving money to countries that are finding the impacts of climate change very profound and difficult. Would a Labour government pay reparations to developing countries for climate change? I don't see it as about reparations. And actually, when you talk to lots of campaigners, they don't. This is about the issue of so-called loss and damage. Mm -hmm. This is the fact that poorer countries are facing massive effects of climate change. You know, we see it all around the and world. We, we see, can, it. and we can quibble about the about the terminology. Well, no, the terminology matters yeah, because lots of people are allergic to the term but, but reparations. But our will want to know also if a Labour government would transfer large amounts uh, of cash to the developing world, including to China. Would Labour give money to China? It's not about China? China, no. It's not about China. So you I, I don't think China isn't necessarily isn't asking for money. Uh, look, this is about poorer countries that are on the front line of the climate crisis. Pakistan had these disastrous floods recently, 30% of the country underwater. So this is about global solidarity. I mean, yes, we have some historical responsibility, but this is about global solidarity. And it's absolutely part of our aid commitment. You know, we don't think the government was right to cut so, the so 0.7 would, aid commitment. But so, but so you were, just to be clear, and I'm, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but to be clear, a Labour absolutely government Absolutely, it's about supporting poorer money. countries, completely right. And, and, it's in, and let me just say, it's morally right, Laura, but it's also in our self-interest too. Because if we don't act and if we don't help countries around the world, we're going to end up with the problems that countries face in t terms of refugees, for example, coming back onto us. Except that China is part of the group of countries that is asking for loss and damage, to use the COP sure. terminology. We should recognise loss and damage, absolutely. Including but, but for a country China. with as much no, money for China. It's but not about giving money group. to China. I promise you, Laura, it's not about giving money to China. Uh, that, that's not what this is about. This is about countries like the Maldives, like mm -hmm. Pakistan and others. And we have aid commitments. Now, unfortunately, mm -hmm. the government has resiled from many of our aid commitments, but it is absolutely about recognising our moral responsibility. Recognising our moral responsibility? That doesn't sound very British. Following Miliband's interview, Sunak went out of his way to rule out climate reparations, stating he would instead prioritise green investment that supports British jobs. As expected, talk of compensation for loss and damage has made the right-wing commentariat lose their collective minds. Writing in the Times, Tim Montgomery said this. 
the idea of reparations is one-sided nonsense. Explaining why, he followed up with, while our consumption footprint is undoubtedly outsized, more than 80% of Nobel science and other prizes have been awarded to Western nations, reflecting what we have given to global civilization. So a few Nobel prizes versus disproportionate historical responsibility for the existential catastrophe that is climate change. I think those two cancel each other out, no? Echoing this sentiment, real-life caricature Alison Pearson wrote in The Telegraph, We don't owe developing countries climate reparations. They owe us. Giving in to specious emotional blackmail from developing nations when your own countrymen are facing enormous hardship is not wrong. It's just immoral. Charming. What Pearson is trying to do there is essentially pit working-class people in Britain dealing with the cost-of-living crisis against those in the global south facing the brunt of climate breakdown. And yes, we do need vast sums of money to do this, trillions of dollars for decarbonisation, hundreds of billions for loss and damage. But these figures could be covered by so many different ways. Ending global subsidies for the fossil fuel industry would free up nearly $6 trillion annually. A climate damages tax on the fossil fuel industry could raise one trillion a year. And defunding armies and militarized policing, well, that could open up $1.9 trillion. That would go a long way to financing the kinds of infrastructures needed for the global South to deal with climate change. And if that means fewer wars, taxing billion dollar companies, and the winding down of the fossil fuel industry, well, I think that'll work out pretty well for working class people everywhere including in Britain. Michael, why has the simple concept of polluters paying for climate damage got the British commentariat shaking like this? Well, I suppose there's a couple of ways to answer. I mean, on the one hand, and I think the point Ed Miliband was probably making is, you know, the reason the word reparation seems to get people's back up is because it's like, well, you know, I'm not personally responsible for um, all of these emissions that were released over the past few decades, et cetera, et cetera. Why should I have to pay? Now, I mean, that doesn't really make sense because it's, you know, it would be the government that does it. So we as a collective are represented by the government and we as a collective have emitted an awful lot of carbon emissions over previous decades. And yes, for a lot of that period, we knew climate change was happening and we knew it was a problem. Obviously, people say, well, we didn't know in the Industrial Revolution that climate change was going to happen. We can't be held to account because we burnt so much coal you know, at the turn of the 19th and the turn of the 20th century. You know, reasonable, but I mean, we did a lot of it um, once climate change had had begun. Um, uh, one reason why politicians sort of like on a technocratic level are also really opposed to this is because they're worried that if you set a precedent that we have to pay for the damage we've done, um, they're like, well, where would it end? And that's very telling in, in and of itself, because if you say, oh, no, we can't, we can't set a precedent that when you cause damage, you have to pay to clear it up because that could bankrupt us. And obviously the implicit assumption or the, the implicit recognition there, in fact, is that we've caused so much damage that were countries to have, or you know, people or you know, communities, to have any means, any recourse um, to get compensation for the damage we've done, that could completely bankrupt us. Now, what does that say about us as a country? Uh, another thing there, I think Rishi Sunak's statement was, I mean, obviously, Alison Pearson's and Tim Montgomery's statements were particularly ridiculous. But Rishi Sunak's one was, I think, just as frustrating, you know, this idea, we won't put forward money for loss and damage, which let's be clear, this is countries where Climate change through very little fault of their own. I mean, virtually no fault of their own. Like, we're often talking about Pacific Islands here, countries which are going to be completely decimated, destroyed by climate change. Pakistan as well, as, as Ed Miliband mentioned, a third of the country 
was underwater for a period this year. Countries with very little responsibility for climate change who are going to be, in many ways, you know, huge parts of, of their nations destroyed, huge parts of their economies destroyed. And the idea of loss and damage is to say, look, um, if we are responsible for emitting all of this carbon and producing this problem for them, and also we do have the means to help out. By the way, we are richer than them, right? I think that's what Laura Kinsey was. Are we going to give money to China? This right. idea, well, China's rich. China isn't richer than us, by the way. Also, as Ed Miliband said, they're not really asking for this. That's not what they... China doesn't go into these meetings saying, can you give us money? Because they can make it themselves, right? This is, this is countries who are in very, very vulnerable positions and are quite poor. And they're saying, look, you cause this problem. Can you give us you know, some money to compensate that? It's somewhat different. I mean, I was talking to Simon Lewis on Monday. It's somewhat different to the adaptation and the mitigation funds, which are somewhat less politically controversial because they don't imply any sort of guilt. Um, but even that, we haven't met our commitments. I think, you know, for, for I think more than a decade now, I think since 2009, we have promised £100 billion per year for mitigation and adaptation. We still haven't met it. Now, developing countries quite rightly are saying there's this third issue, actually, which is loss and damage. There's, there's some damage from climate change, which we cannot adapt to, to minimize the damage. You know, if, you, if you're a small island that's going to be underwater if sea levels rise, what, what adaptation can you do? And that's why they're saying we just need, we need cash. We need cash to, to, to compensate us for this damage. There's no point in even pretending this is about adapting anymore. That's what's going on here. And yeah, I suppose... I also think the Tim Montgomery thing is so ridiculous. Like, oh no, we've made loads of Nobel Prize winners. Now, uh, like the ledger between Nobel Prize winners and climate change, I mean, you can have a very interesting philosophical debate about it. But fundamentally, what you've got here is a situation where people much poorer than ourselves are having their livelihoods destroyed, their communities destroyed because of climate change. We are responsible for that. We have the money. We, ha we, we do have the capacity to deal with that as a country. And we are saying no. And you can't say, oh, we've got these scientists. Why are they asking us for this? I mean, you know, can, can the rich world not have had great scientists and great scientific development and also not be completely selfish when it comes to a problem that we cause? I, I don't see why those two things should be in opposition. Yeah, I think it reminds me a little bit of like whenever we talk about the kind of statues discussion and we talk about individual statues and they always come back and say like, oh, well, if you got rid of every statue that has something to do with colonialism, colonialism or slavery, then, you know, we would have to tear up every single monument in the country. And it's like, that's the point, you guys. Um, but also that that question of like refusing to accept responsibility and trying to portray this as like an act of charity that countries in the global north can either decide or not decide to partake in. It's like, no, like, first of all, the wealth that you've accrued that allows you to be one of like some of the wealth to ha be the wealthiest countries in the world is wealth that you accrued through colonial exploitation to begin with. And, you know, that that's why they keep shirking this question of, of liability, um, I think, because it's kind of very much about wanting to portray this as charity and aid rather than something that is, you know, a debt that is actually owed to to these countries. On to our next story. At the start of the week, we saw Williamson's leaked potty mouth texts, but it was only after the revelation that he had told a civil servant to slit their throat that he was forced to resign. Sunak responded by expressing his, quote, great sadness at the resignation. That was a statement that Keir Starmer attacked at today's PMQs. Mr Speaker, the member for South Staffordshire told a civil servant to slit their throat. 
How does the Prime Minister think the victim of that bullying felt when he expressed great sadness at his resignation? Unequivocally, the behaviour complained of was unacceptable. And it is absolutely right, it is absolutely right that the right honourable gentleman has resigned. For the record, I did not know about any of the specific concerns relating to his conduct as Secretary of State or Chief Whip, which date back some years. I believe that people in public life should treat others with consideration and respect, and those are the principles that this government will stand by. Mr Speaker, the member for South Staffordshire spent years courting the idea he can intimidate others, blurring the lines to normalise bullying behaviour. It's precisely why the Prime Minister gave him a job. The truth is simple. He's a pathetic bully. But he would never get away with it if people like the Prime Minister didn't hand him power. So does he regret his decision to make him a government minister? Mr Speaker, I obviously regret appointing someone who has had to resign in these circumstances. But I think think what the British people would like to know is that when situations like this arise, that they will be dealt with properly. And that's, why, and that's why it is absolutely right that he resigned, and it's why it is absolutely right that there is an investigation to look into these matters properly. I said my government would be characterised by integrity, professionalism and accountability, and it will. Mr Speaker, everyone in the country knows someone like the member for South Staffordshire. A sad middle manager getting off on intimidating those beneath him. But everyone in the country also knows someone like the Prime Minister. The boss who is so weak, so worried the bullies will turn on him, that he hides behind them. What message does he think it sends when rather than take on the bullies, he lines up alongside them and thanks them for their loyalty? Integrity in public life matters. And that is why... That is why it is right that the right honourable member has resigned. It is why it is right that there is a rigorous process to examine these issues. The idea that Rishi Sunak didn't know how Williamson worked is pretty far-fetched because he hasn't exactly hidden it. In 2017, he spoke as chief whip to Tory party conference. Take a look. The peddling of secrets, dark arts, the odd inducement, or even threat. But conference, please rest assured, some of this is fiction. Whoa, what a creep. Michael, what do you make of this? Yeah, I've been trying to work out what I think of this. I suppose, first of all, like, what a, what a creep. I mean, I 100% agree with you. It's just, it's just gross. What awful people. And I actually thought some of Keir Starmer's words in PMQs rung true, you know, talking about him sort of this vicious middle manager and someone who's allowing it to to go ahead at the top. But I, I do find the whole debate just very disingenuous from all sides. Like, I mean, everyone's seen the thick of it, right? The thick of it was demonstrating someone who was ensuring party discipline by being a complete arsehole. And it wasn't a secret that that was based on Alistair Campbell. Now, all of the people in Keir Starmer's team, everyone he looks up to, is from that same New Labour coterie. So this idea of sort of, oh, I can't imagine that you could possibly have let someone get away with being an unpleasant bully in Parliament. 
know, you've surrounded yourself with people who are very much associated with a period in government where that bullying happened. And I'm, I'm sure it still happens. I mean, that's kind of what our political system seems to be based on, which we can, well, well I suppose, that, yeah, let's go straight on to that, right? which is you have a political system which is based on these two parties have complete power. No one is allowed to, or, or no one is sort of able to challenge that for electoral reasons because we have a first-past-the-post system. And that just gives enormous power to bullies at the top of two quite unsavory institutions. So yes, we've got these horrible stories of Gavin Williamson sounding just like a complete asshole. Like he just he just sounds like a petty piece of shit. I mean, really. Like if you, if you, if you think of the way he behaves, but then you look at the people around Keir Starmer and how they're treating people who are you know standing to be MPs. Say so you've got people, really good people, directors of NGOs fighting for racial justice who are getting blocked from shortlists, blocked from long lists. And then you have people around Keir Starmer who sort of gleefully brief the press, oh, the only people we're stopping being MPs are cranks and anti-Semites. Now, that is the action of a bully, just as much as what Gavin Williamson has done is the action of a bully. And I think Keir Starmer knows that. I think Rishi Sunak knows that, which is why I find this whole thing just gross. Everyone in the press knows this. Everyone's like feigning, like feigning surprise. Oh, I can't believe Gavin Williamson did this. This is what the whole system is based on. And the only way to sort of disempower these absolute wrong-uns at the top of the two parties is to take away their monopoly, which would be something like proportional representation, right? So we, we have a system where the parties are all about maintaining discipline in Labour. That's especially at the moment by controlling selections, by saying anyone who might possibly disagree with the position of the leadership just can't be involved. They have to be excluded from politics. And while we're excluding these people, we're going to smear them, by the way, as cranks and anti-Semites. In the Tory party, it seems to be more about bullying people because of their sexual proclivities and sort of saying, I will blackmail you essentially so that you vote with us. Now, neither of this, uh, neither of these examples are healthy. This, this is not a good way to run a society. And you do think, of course, we've got loads of goddamn problems in this country. It's because we can't solve anything because we're being run by these two gangs, essentially. Um, so I just think, yeah, I, I think what frustrates me is this being this sort of, Keir Starmer, oh, he's honorable. Oh, Rishi Sunak, he's not honorable. These MPs are nice. These MPs are bullies. It's stupid. But I do think it is still a relevant story because it tells us something about the rot at the heart of our political system. Yeah, I think it really speaks to just kind of how like systemically engendered this kind of behavior is. And it all, but it also makes me, I also find it really funny when we kind of clutch our pearls, when the press clutches their pearls at the idea that people who are willing to enforce like the most unimaginable suffering on regular people that they also happen to be personally awful as well like it reminded me when uh Priti Patel was done for bullying or it was exposed that she was a bully I was like yeah it doesn't surprise me that a woman who like looks at vulnerable people crossing in the channel in small boats and says, I'm going to put a wave machine in there to send them back. It doesn't surprise me that that woman is also a horrible person to work with and is a complete, you know, bully. Uh, and I think it just, it just really feels like our political system is run by like US style frat rules, um, which as you said, it's no wonder that we're not getting anything done and that things are going so terribly in the political sphere. On to our final story. It's the moment I'm certain you've all been waiting for. This is the first footage of Matt Hancock on set for I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I don't think I've got any fears or phobias, but I'm about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm Matt Hancock, I'm the MP for West Suffolk, and I'm best known for being the former health secretary. But there are people who will criticise a sitting MP going to the jungle, but showing that we politicians are normal human beings is actually really important. Survival in the jungle is, uh, is a good metaphor for the world I work in. Now I don't have a mission statement, I'm just going to go and be myself. If I'm asked to do a trial, I just hope I can find those stars. I've got absolutely no idea how I deal with snakes. I've never come across a live snake before. Eating bugs? I'm sure I'll be fine. I can just get it. You can just get it down, you can't you? What? Eating bombs? That's not part of the show, is it? Never seen a real life snake before. Weren't you hell secretary under Boris Johnson? Don't think, don't think that's Ooh. true. <laughs> Michael, will you join the nation in voting to watch Matt Hancock suffer? Uh, I mean, if I were to vote, that's probably who I'd vote for. Um, I haven't watched this season. I'm not sure I will. The thing I like about Matt Hancock is he's always sort of like, I'm here to prove that politicians are normal. And then he does like the weirdest <laughs> thing you could imagine. After everyone watches me be me, everyone's going to think, oh, politicians, they're just like my friends. They're kind of cool. It's like, ha! like a weird, it, it reminded me also of that moment, you know, where he sort of pretends to cry on Good Morning Britain. We're sort of like, and then when I saw uh, the woman get her vaccine, I felt almost emotional. He goes, <laughs> like, oh my God, he's a human with emotions like us. If it doesn't work, he can't turn it on. I also think it's stupid because like the the idea that disenchantment with politics at the moment is because people don't recognize MPs or ordinary people is just bullshit. Like the, the reason people are disenchanted with politics is because it's not providing rising living standards and because everyone at the top seems like they're incompetent and in it for themselves. Now, the fact that you can like laugh at a joke or be chirpy when bugs are falling on you like that that's who is that reassuring to you you don't meet anyone i've never met anyone who says oh the problem with politics is that they're they're a bit too stiff they're a bit too professional they never let their hair down that's not anyone's problem with westminster people's problems with westminster are are that if anything kind of the opposite that they don't take it seriously that these are people who are just out for themselves who just want to party in the middle of lockdown and don't seriously care about the country. They're just there to, to sort of feather their own egos. And so it, it does seem to me that, you know, Matt Hancock taking out his own words, it's self-defeating because he's kind of proving the point. He's proving why people are disillusioned with politicians in the first place. Yeah, and I just find the attempts to, that he's put forward to act like this is part of some kind of greater good, like he's taking one for the team and and making politics more accessible. And really, he's doing this for all of us. It's just so transparent. Like, this is about Matt Hancock's ego. This is about him trying to rehabilitate his reputation. It's about him trying to shake off the stench of the COVID pandemic and his ma mismanagement of it. He's trying to break the fact that we just associate him with nurses wearing bin bags because they don't have enough PPE and trying to make himself into this kind of lovable, like, fuzzy character and it's just uh, depressingly it might work I'm not sure if he's like normal enough to to have it work because I think as you said like the whole point of this is to make him look normal and all it does is just make us me more confused about like where Matt Hancock comes from in the universe um because I'm just like I've never met someone who laughs like that and who behaves like that um but 
yeah, I mean, that is what this is about. And don't let him tell you otherwise. So we have Saul uh, with £10 uh, on the YouTube Super Chat. Thank you so much, Saul. That's such a generous donation. Um, you say, Saul saying, solidarity with the UCU who will be striking for three days later this month. And shame on Nick Ferrari, who in an interview with Joe Grady today, used the tragic death of a student to attack UCU members. I wouldn't expect anything else from Nick Ferrari, and I'm sure Joe did an amazing job. Uh, actually, on that point, it's it's worth mentioning another strike. Um, the Royal College of Nurses have voted to go on strike for the first time in their 106-year history, uh, in part because of the way that Hancock bungled the pandemic response, which kind of pushed a workforce that was already uh, struggling to to breaking point. Don't you think, Michael, that it's a pretty bad look for Matt Hancock that whilst he's trying to rehabilitate his reputation by doing stupid things in the jungle, that nurses have been pushed to go on strike for the first time in history? I actually think that probably Matt Hancock going to the jungle can solve this strike, you know, because <laughs> I think all these nurses, all these underpaid, overworked, unappreciated nurses who, you know, ruining their family lives because they're going to work, um, late hours, not getting paid enough and then feel depressed because they're not providing a good service because our NHS is completely collapsed. I think when they get home, if they get home, you know, I don't know what time you get home if you're a nurse. I mean, I don't even know what time I'm a celebrity get me out of here is on. Um, but I assume there are some nurses who are home at time at the time where they can watch I'm a celebrity get me out of here. And I think they will think, look, actually, you know, I know they have cut our wages. I know, you know, they, they made us wear bin bags during the pandemic, but this Matt Hancock, he really seems like a decent guy who's not out for himself. And I've actually changed my mind. I'm going to call up the RCA and I'm going to reverse my vote because when I voted for a strike, what I was really striking against was stiff politicians um, who I just thought were too professional. And so, no, uh, let's, let's call off the strike. I think that's going to happen. I think patients will be delighted. I think when Matt Hancock returns from the jungle, probably we'll do a sort of 8 p.m. Thursday thing where we just clap for Matt Hancock. Um, because I think he's really hit onto something here. I want to see a politician eat a bug. Um, who cares if we're all getting poorer and can't afford our rent each month? God, I think it's just so frustrating. And this is across the board with the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. Is this? It's like such lack of faith in the intelligence of regular people to think that the disaffection with politics, as you mentioned, is like an optics thing or like it's something that can be solved with the right slogan or the right presentation or the right whatever. And it's like, no, this is a material problem. People are feel the material injustice um, of the society that we live in today. And you can't like trick people out of their reality with like old school, thinly veiled attempts at PR spin. Like it's just, it's, the British people know better than that, basically, um, is what I'm saying. So that is it for today's show. Uh, thank you so much, Michael, for joining me today from your underground bunker. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm very excited about your new career as a Tisky Sour host. <laughs> you've, you've, you've performed fabulously. Well, I hope I'm doing a better job than Nadine Doris, at least. That's the only thing I'm working towards. Um, and thank you all so much for watching Tisky Sour. I've been your host, Dahlia Gabriel. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.